In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the penultimate Sunday of Epiphany. Next Sunday will be the last Sunday, and then we will begin the Lenten season. So we have one eye on uh, our preparations, what it is that we need to get in order, what plans we need to make so that we can have and keep a Holy Lent while continuing to reflect upon Epiphany and upon God manifesting Himself, God making Himself known to the world. He has made Himself known in His birth. He's made Himself known in His baptism. He's made Himself known through the power of His Holy Spirit, through His Scriptures. He's made Himself known so that we would repent and that we would turn to Him. And He's made Himself known through His law, and He has instructed us in His law, and He has even written it upon His heart. He has revealed Himself through it. And it's a wonderful passage that we have, a kind of a summary understanding, a very straightforward, I think, understanding of uh, a, a question that gets begged when uh, the law is presented, which is, uh, what power do we have? If God is sovereign, is God, if God is all, if God is everything, do we have the power to make decisions? Do we have the power to do evil or to do good? Is that within us? And the writer of Ecclesiasticus answers that question maybe more succinctly and straightforwardly than any other place in Holy Scripture. You remember that Ecclesiasticus is written about 200 B.C., probably in Alexandria by a Jew who was uh, there as part of the, uh, the great exodus, those who were living abroad. His name was Ben Sirach, and uh, his grandson uh, translated it into Greek, and it's part of that uh, middle portion between the lesser prophets and the New Testament that we call the Deuterocanon, uh, these Greek scriptures. There have been some in the last several hundred years that have, uh, part of a progressive Christianity, tried to reduce the status of the Deuterocanon, even taking it out of many copies of the Bible. And uh, I put it to you that you can see why. They're taking this out because they're trying to um, assert a kind of Christian doctrine that would take away free will. And uh, I think that you don't see uh, any more straightforwardly this doctrine presented uh, than here in Ecclesiasticus. The writer is very clear. He says that the Lord does not sin. He does not cause anybody to sin. The Lord caused somebody to sin, he would be sinning himself. God is holy. He only does good. He says he has no need of people committing sin. There's no plan that he has that involves people doing sin. God is holy. His plan is holy. He only has plan for good. There is nothing about sin that would execute God's plan. It's not part of it. He says that we have a choice to make, that we can either choose good or evil, and we will get the consequences of what we choose. These are straightforward principles that are expressed all the way through Scripture, but presented to us very succinctly. I want to pause for a minute and think about free will and its importance. Number one, I would assert to you that there's really no way, there's no philosophical way that we can deny free will, right? We would have to be using our free will to deny it, right? Right? The whole question of free will wouldn't come up if we were robots, if we were uh, under God's sovereign plan and couldn't choose for ourselves. That concept wouldn't have any appearance because it wouldn't have its grounding in the source of all wisdom, in the source of all life. If he was the kind of God who was making robots, he wouldn't be making robots with the ability to think about free will and then to find out that there was no such thing. That would be completely contradict contradictory. And it goes to the heart of what we know about God, just like the writer Ecclesiasticus says. 
There is uh, no evil in God. There is no plan for Him. And again, there is no plan for Him to have fooled and confused His creatures, that is us, with this idea of free will if we didn't have it. It's a grounding. It's, a, it's an essential aspect of who we are. And the danger of it is that we have uh, to live with our consequences. That is what makes people, I think, want to give it up and create these grand kind of theologies that would try to dismiss it, to take away our own responsibility. Because it's terrifying. It's terrifying that we might choose damnation. It's terrifying that we might choose destruction. It's terrifying that we might have to live with our consequences. But again, I put to you that uh, there would be no point in uh, Scripture at all if there wasn't free will. There'd be no point in telling us about any of this stuff anyways. There'd be no point in presenting a law that we had to submit ourselves to. There'd be no point in the teaching that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount if there was no free will, if there wasn't a choice to be made. Because he's presenting us with a choice, isn't he? He does it over and over again. And he does it so profoundly in the Sermon on the Mount. He does it so... Um, foundationally, so perfectly, that he has, to, he has to address the idea that somehow he is presenting a teaching that is either in place of or contradictory to the commandments. The Ten Commandments and the law given to Moses in the desert. Otherwise, why would he bring it up? And when we look at those first couple of verses that we've been discussing, the Beatitudes and the Similitudes, we can see when we look at it rightly that it is a grounding that's necessary for our living the commandments. We realize that without this humility that he presents in the Beatitudes, without this uh, righteousness that he presents in the Similitudes, we would have no place to, to enter into our confession of sin and the commandments. We have to be humble enough to confess God. We have to be humble enough to keep His Sabbath. We have to be uh, low enough and righteous enough to love our neighbor as ourselves, so that we can fulfill the law. And so now that He's presented to us this bedrock foundation, this quality of human living that's required for us to submit ourselves, to bow ourselves low in order to fulfill the law, He says, what do you think? Do you think that I've given you some new law? And He rejects that. In the passage just before this, he says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I've not come to remove one jot or tittle, right? He says, I've come to uh, complete and to fulfill all that has been taught. And there are many people in many places that you've heard who have said uh, about a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament and uh, the God or the way that the Old Testament is teaching morality and the way the New Testament is teaching it. And Jesus completely and utterly rejects that, doesn't he? He says, I didn't come to, to replace the law, I came to fulfill the law. He says that Moses wrote about me, right? There is a, a union, there is a, a, a fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment of the scriptures that Jesus completes. And where anybody would get the idea that somehow Jesus is presenting some kind of a lighter uh, scripture, that he's presenting a God who's easier or nicer or kinder or more forgiving or something... Uh, would mean not reading this passage that we've just read at all, doesn't it? He says, not only do I tell you not to commit murder, but I'm telling you don't call somebody a name. If that isn't more severe, I don't know what is. He says, if you call somebody a name, you're guilty of murder. 
because you've done it in your heart. And we have a God who's concerned with the heart. His concern is with the condition of our hearts. Now let me just preface all this by saying that there is no unforgivable sin, right? He forgives murder, he forgives adultery, he forgives lying, right? The only unforgivable sin is against the Holy Spirit, that is to reject repentance at all, because then we cut ourselves off from the possibility of forgiveness. But none of these sins are unforgivable. But he goes straight to the heart. That is, nobody murders without first calling their brother a name. That's how we get on the road of murder in the first place. We diminish the humanity of the other person. This is how people are able to commit atrocities. Right? They commit atrocities by devaluing the other person. You look at anybody in human history, at any group of people in human history, that have committed mass murder or destruction, they start by diminishing the humanity of the other person, by calling them names. And that's how we start, by diminishing the people around us so that we can dismiss them, we can excuse them, we can move them out of the way, and we won't have to submit ourselves or sacrifice for them. We paint them as being so ugly and so vile that nobody would love them or sacrifice themselves for them. And Jesus says that is the heart of sin and where it starts. So we do not call our brothers and sisters names. We also don't look at anybody with lust because again, adultery doesn't start without looking first. People say, oh, it doesn't hurt to look, right? Are excusing sin. Of course it hurts to look because that's where adultery starts. That's where the plan is made. That's where the pieces are put in place. Adultery is not done by accident. People don't just all of a sudden fall into bed and say, Oh, here I am. <laughs> you laugh because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It starts with the condition of the heart and the way that we look at other people. Again, looking at them in a way that is about our own use and our own benefit. About serving ourselves. Not about serving God. And the same goes for the way that we talk. When we swear, when we make promises. A promise is somehow saying, the way that I usually talk doesn't really mean anything, so now I'm going to make a promise. The promise indicates what I've been saying before is just a bunch of stuff. Now I'm going to stop and say, now what I'm saying now is really important. And I'm going to hold myself to it. Well, what have you been saying before? Do you see how we make it so easy on ourselves to just say whatever we want and whatever is convenient, and whatever can get us out of a mess, or whatever uh, is going to be beneficial to us? Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no mean no. In other words, every word that we speak is contractual. Every word that we say binds. Because we are bound by Christ in our hearts. And it's our, I'm speaking to myself here, it's our failure to live with these foundational principles that makes it impossible for us to move on to greater spiritual growth and renewal in the church. Because when we're living this way, right, we're going to be in strife and jealousy. 
we're going to be arguing, that is fussing and fighting about stuff that is not about the kingdom of God, making a real mess of our congregational life living, and we will not be able to do the work that God has set us here to do, that is to set the captives free, to release people from sin, to teach them righteous living, to hold them up in holy lives, receiving the blessings and benefits of God. So if we don't move past this milk stage of Christian living, we will not be able to move to that more mature stage that St. Paul has promised for us in this first letter to the Corinthians. He's saying there's so much more. There's so much more blessing. There's so much more honor. There's so much more transformation of our lives. We can live with God. We can receive His voice. We can know His will. We can uh, do wondrous things in His name. But we can't do it if we're still messing around with sin. He says God gives the growth. God gives the growth. We can't do any of this without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't submit in humility. We can't curb our tongues. We can't curb our hearts and our eyes without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. But if we will submit ourselves to Him, if we will submit ourselves to the power of God, if we will sit before His throne and receive His Spirit, He will change our hearts. He will soften our hearts and clear our minds so that we are able to not only perceive His will and His law, but we are actually able to want it. To want to live according to His ways. May that be growth that we receive this day and forevermore. Amen.